Hello, this is Gary Sheffer of Boston University. I'm here with my outstanding podcast partner and CCO at Enbridge, Mike Fernandez, for another episode of The Crux. Today, we're really excited to have Megan DeShulo from PricewaterhouseCoopers, or PwC as it's known now, which is a leading advisory and consulting firm, and of course, one of the big four accounting firms. Megan is the U.S. and Mexico communications leader for the firm. Megan has been leading some impressive work on culture and trust initiatives at PwC. This work has been recognized for its innovation by Page Up, and Megan recently was named to PR Week's 40 Under 40 list, something unfortunately that Mike and I are no longer eligible for. Welcome to the crux, Megan. Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. So Megan, let's let's start off with talking about PwC, which PricewaterhouseCoopers in your past, big four accounting firm. But now, as I said in the opening, it's uh, this network of firms under the PwC brand. And and how does that all work? You know, many people, including me, aren't as familiar as maybe we should be about partnerships and how the work is structured. And I'm asking both about the, the company itself, the firm itself, and, and your team. Yeah, so thanks, Gary. So PwC is the brand under which member firms operate and deliver professional services. We are all come together through the PwC network. There's 152 member firms that are a part of the PwC network. So think PwC US, PwC Australia, PwC China, PwC, PwC Germany, et cetera. And there's nearly 328,000 of us that are a part of the PwC network. We are the second largest professional services network in the world. And the reason that we're structured as a partnership, as part of a network, as opposed to a corporation, is because the laws in many countries around the world require accounting firms to be locally owned and independent. And that's not dissimilar to other professional services industries like law firms. That said, um, just because we're a network, we actually get called by our clients because of our global size and scale and reach. So we are able to collaborate across territory seamlessly to be able to solve clients' problems in tax, audit and assurance and consulting um, all the time. Now, what has that meant for the communications organization, Megan? I, I, I've read somewhere where you went through a, a little bit of a reorganization in terms of bringing together internal and external communications. Yeah, so each of the different member firms have their own communications team, and then they are bound together by the global communications team. And we operate, as you would expect, seamlessly across territories. A few years ago, we brought together the internal and external comms teams at PwC 
And I'm actually going to take a step back and remind everybody what the world was like in 2020 (laughs) when we did that. That's something we probably want to spend a lot of time on. But remember, we were in the midst of a global pandemic. We had societal and racial unrest. Overnight, employee connectivity and culture changed. We were spending a heck of a lot more time online and on social media, hence the rise of TikTok. Yet the information that we were getting was fragmented, it was disparate, and we didn't actually trust that. At the same time, PwC was on the brink of going through a global strategy refresh. And that's something we hadn't done in a very long time. The US firm as part of the network was gonna go one step further and go forward in a once in a generation organizational transformation and take our three lines of service and collapse them into two business segments. So Mm -hmm. when we were talking about combining the internal and external comms teams, it actually made quite a lot of sense given the internal and external market and the business challenge that we were about to go on. Yeah, that's interesting. So, so I, I guess what what I'd be interested in, so lots of organizations look at uh, reorganizational change at different points. And you, know, you had a lot of changes happening in the business, a lot of changes happening in society. What you went through, were there any key learnings uh, in terms of, you know, what would you say to a chief communications officer at another company who's looking to do the same? Thanks, Mike. Such a good question. So, you know, I think fast forward in present day, we're seeing a lot of communications leaders and CCOs and businesses start to think about bringing those teams together. And we're still on our journey, but a couple of things I've learned along the way that I think are important for CCOs as they consider this, if it's the right thing for their organization. The first is make sure that you understand the business outcomes that the communication organization is supposed to achieve and then therefore organize around them. So I'll give you an example. For me, my two business objectives for the comms org is to build and protect the brand and accelerate our firm strategy. So with those two objectives, it actually makes a lot of sense to bring the disparate parts of the communications and change organization into one in order to drive that strategy more efficiently and effectively. The second is that uh, it's an often overlooked and sometimes boring and tedious facet, but spend a lot of time on the governance and the accountability and the process around collaboration. One of the communications team's superpowers is to be able to connect disparate things together and connect dots throughout an organization actually don't do that well if you don't spend a lot of time on the governance and the accountability around how you collaborate. So we do that through org design, but we also do that through Hmm. ways of working. And we also do that through technology. All of our campaigns are in one technology system. So actually we don't go out with a campaign unless it goes through that system. And that's a way for us to connect dots to say, okay, I'm going to launch something in two weeks. Does it make sense to bundle it with that? that other thing that's going on and how would the audiences that are receiving that see and feel and receive that if it was combined or separate. So um, the ways of working is, is a really important one. The last is like any good change management exercise, it's going to take a minute. 
for people to get used to the new structure and the new ways of working, I brought together 160 communicators into my team. Now, communications is the red thread or the banner in which we are all connected under, but I have employee engagement, advocates, I have writers, I have media relations professionals that are sort of my comms generalists. I'm pairing them with public affairs practitioners, crisis communicators, social media strategists, change practitioners, even data scientists and project managers. That's a lot of expertise under one banner. And we spent a lot of time on our team thinking about being curious and leaning into each other's ways of working and perspective on the world. Now, do I want everybody to be a crisis comms expert or a change expert? Absolutely not. But I want us <laughs> to be able to understand each other's processes and ways of working to be able to bring that into the business stakeholder at the right time in the right way to solve the business challenge. And you don't do that without really understanding and appreciating what each other does all day. So that would seem that requires a lot of collaboration. How do you how do you get the team to collaborate on the right things at the right time? Yeah, I think it's a a lot of opportunity where we spend a lot of time listening to each other and really focusing on what is the most important business objective that we need to solve. We also set out a really clear strategy. Um, we have one on our team that's you know practice discipline engagement, and so. I actually don't measure the activity that we do. I don't care. I don't want people working 15 hours a day. I want people working smarter on the different things. And so we really focus on driving impact, not activity. And we also spend a lot of time focused on our insights mm -hmm. that will drive a more efficient and effective communication strategy. Um, we're very big into ComTech, and that's our data-led and tech-enabled approach to communications. So that has helped us not only be more precise in the way we communicate, but actually collaborate on the right things that we know that our audiences want to hear from us at the right times. You know, uh, Megan, I want to come back to ComTech, but I, I was struck by one thing you said, and it's actually a word, which is governance. It's a, not a word you hear a lot in communications. And, and so, you know, we typically associate that with our general counsel and how we uh, operate at the board level and all that. So tell me what you mean by that a governance in a communication sense. Yeah, it's the accountability frameworks that we have for collaboration. And it's set up through the org design, but it's also set up through the ways of working. As I said, one of the communications team's superpowers is to connect disparate things together. So we have to spend time on those ways of working in order to be able to achieve those business goals. And that happens through a proper governance and org design and ways of working process. Interesting. Interesting. Well, I want to come back to ComTech. It's a, as with partnership, it's another topic I don't really understand. So um, I always like to talk to smart people about it. And it, you've made some progress and done some really interesting work in advancing um, your team's uh, efforts through comms tech and data, as you just mentioned. And I, I was just wondering if you could tell us more about what you're doing specifically, what kind of data you're using, what your stack looks like, and all of the you know the buzzwords that we talk about with Comtech these days. But what are you doing, and how maybe specifically is it being integrated into the traditional work that we think about in communications? 
Yeah. Let me take a step back and talk about why we even started this, because I think that helps get to the, the what and the how. Um, several years ago, Arthur Page Society put out a white paper on the future of the corporate communications function. And it, it, in it, it said the communications function needs to be more involved in several areas, culture, brand, societal issues, and data and insights. And so I was ticking through it. And the first three all made complete sense that that was an area my team and I were spending a ton of time on already. The last one, quite frankly, Gary, stumped me because if communicators are anything like me, we got into comms because we love to be creative. We love to storytell. We love to speak to the media. We don't want to be anywhere near data and insight. In fact, uh, I switched my major at Georgetown out of finance and into marketing and comms so that I wouldn't have to be <laughs> and here I am four years ago and you know the most well-renowned professional services org in communications is saying that we need to be knee-deep in data so I, I thought about that a lot and I started to talk to my peers and other organizations one of the the very many benefits of PAGE is that it's a good connector to other different groups and I was hearing about what they were doing and they were along on the journey um, on Comstech. And they had said, Comstech is a great way to pair professional judgment with insights and data to more personalized communication. Mm -hmm. And so I took a step back and I said, I'm at PwC. PwC. I have 65,000 people that are a part of my organization who are not monolithic. We also have a variety of different external stakeholders from recruits to policymakers, um, to our clients that we want to impact and, and get to and have a good relationship with. And gosh, we can't get there alone through our, our resources. So we started to invest in a series of technology platforms. And it truly is a series because one technology can't do it all. Right. And most communications teams start with the end, the measurement, the insight, how well did we do? And one of the biggest lessons I learned from talking with my peers is actually to start with the beginning, that if you invest in data and research from the upfront, you can really be able to shape campaigns and shape strategies better and then drive that through and through the channel strategy, through the campaign management, and then at the end, get to how well did we do and using data and technology along the way. So we built a tech stack that is all encompassing strategy through execution. And I thought, great, I did it. I'm doing ComTech. But what I didn't know was actually that the hard part was in the people engagement. Because again, these are communicators. We love to talk. We love to write. And so for the past several years, I've actually had to really help upskill my team and sell this in that this is not a replacement for professional judgment, but it can be used alongside professional judgment to understand if we should embark on something, if there's an insight that about an audience that we should uncover, if we should do a um, be on a certain channel that we haven't been on. Because in Comstack, we launched a TikTok channel because we knew that our recruits, we recruit 15,000 people off of campus this, every year, they were on TikTok. And so while we had great information, we were getting it out on the wrong channel. Equally, we were able to more precisely understand are communications messages resonating? Are they having an impact? Are they having 
uh, the perceived action that we're trying them to take. So it's really been a great complement to our traditional communications function and strategy. Yeah, you know, it's it's the the judgment thing you talked about, which is maybe what scares some old guys like me off, right? It, which is um, data is only good if you can draw insights from it, actionable insights from it, and and uh, you still apply judgment to it, and and still a lot of what we do in public relations communications is maybe more art than science at times, right? Uh, p- particularly in telling the story. But I love the example that you give of understanding your audiences better using data. We, when I was at GE, we were half retail in the, from an investor's standpoint, we had some assumptions about who those retail investors were. And those assumptions we learned through data were completely wrong, right? We were we were telling stories to the wrong people, not just on the wrong channel. And so uh, I really, I really love that example. So it sounds like you guys are um, using it in a way. And by the way, when people say tech stack to me, I just get all goosebumpy. It's like, you know, it, it's, it's exciting to me because I'm learning. Yeah. We're going to Mars. You know, I, it's, it's actually exciting for me to we're learn. We're going that. to Mars. Yeah. And I think this is an area where um, the communications function can take, nod and out of what the marketing function has done. Um, We were a bit behind. And so marketing, that profession has really started to personalize how you receive information. And we can do the same in communications. As I mentioned, we have 65,000 people and they're much more dynamic than just their staff class or their geography or their business segment. So investing in ComTech helps us all learn what matters to them, right? I'm a mom of two. I'm a huge runner. So in addition to be a managing director and living in Chicago, I love information about our health and wellness. I want Mm -hmm. information about our parental benefits, right? But you don't get that through judgment alone. You get that through data and insights that then you can develop communications that are going to be right for me, which may not be right for you. Well said. You know, you pointed up a couple of things I think are important to underscore. First is just the sheer size of the organization and the complexity of that. Um, the other thing that I think is is interesting, and you and you also briefly mentioned, is that a lot of these people are remote workers. A lot of them were remote workers even before the pandemic, uh, in, in in the nature of 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 the kind of agency. Uh, that you're operating, consulting businesses that you're operating. Um, What has that meant in terms of that remoteness, in terms of challenges for you and your organization, in terms of creating a a, a meaningful communications organization? Yeah, so I have been at the firm for eight years, and I've actually always been a remote employee. So we've always had a strong culture of flexible work. Um, I would say that the PwC work profile falls in three areas. You're either like myself and you're fully remote or you go into the office, your local office, and you team with your colleagues on a client problem, or you get on a plane, train, or automobile and head to your client site and work with your client you know, on that problem. So even before the pandemic, we were trying to meet our people where they are, which is most likely on the go. And so had a strong focus on technology and mobile application and smart brevity, right? Axio smart brevity, we all know it. And that was something that we were really embracing because people were always on the go and in in different areas. 
the pandemic has only accelerated that and made it really um, important for us to continue to focus on personalization of our employees because we know that they are with their clients and they're doing things in different ways. And so um, that has helped us to be able to accelerate that process um, for our partners and staff. So, Megan, PwC recently announced uh, along these lines uh, a new people experience called My Plus. I thought it, maybe it was a new streaming service. There's so many of those these days, but it's My Plus. <laughs> that will allow employees to quote unquote, build more personalized careers, which sounds really interesting. Can you explain a little bit more about what uh, MyPlus is and why the firm uh, is doing this transformation? I was also struck, maybe if you can address it in the, the stuff I've read about PwC and your work about how much change work there is that's going on, right? In, in uh, that you're working with, uh, HR or people management, whatever you call it. But so the question is my plus, and then how much of the time that you're spending now uh, internally is on change management? Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Crux. On The Crux, we discuss the intersection of communications, business, and society. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and Twitter. You can also find our episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, and on our website at thecruxpodcast.org. Now, let's get back to the episode. Yeah. So we're a human capital organization. Our people are our competitive advantage. So our, the people experience matters to us. My plus is the biggest and boldest reimagination of that people experience. As you said, Gary, it's a focus on personalizing our people's careers with technology um, at the forefront of it, all while keeping our clients front and center. It's a three-year transformation digitally and culturally. And if we do it right, we want to make substantial progress in four areas. First, really focusing on learning and development to give people the skills that they need not only now, but in the future to serve our firm. So think things like cyber and ESG mm -hmm. and cloud and digital, all really important topics for us that require specific skills to so really train up people and the emerging skills um, of the future and give them different pathways to provide them different opportunities at the career. Second is a strong focus on rewards and benefits and really customizing mm -hmm. that to people's different life stages. So what works for me at 22 may not work for me at 32, may not even work for me at 42. Absolutely. And so why do my benefits have to say the same throughout that entire life cycle? And so really focusing on people's life stages and customizing rewards and benefits to them during those times. The third is flexibility and wellness. We've always had a strong culture of flexibility, but with the pandemic, with the introduction of Gen Z to the workforce and the strong focus on mental health, we've tried to and will continue to try to accelerate that to be a best-in-class provider of flexibility and wellness. The last is around creating a long-standing connection to the firm. Well, I hope everybody will stay at the firm for the entirety of their <laughs> career. I know that's probably not the case. Um, so if and when you leave, 
trying to build that connective tissue with our alumni in a greater way so we can have investors and friends of the firm, um, even though they may no longer be here. So you have that longstanding connection. Um, Gary, you mentioned how has comms been a role in this? And I think this is such a great case study of using all of our communications capabilities from the start to the finish. So let me break this down for you. The comms team helped really develop the strategy. We helped name um, the, the initiative. We helped develop the messaging and then personalize that. What we say to our partners is a little different than what we say to our employees, which is a little different than what we say to the talent that we're trying to attract. Right. So customizing that message to the different audiences, using our PR team to be able to go out and, and talk about that to the marketplace, getting under the hood, using our change management practitioners to make sure that the technology and the user experience is the right one. It's going to be something that's easy and seamless. It's something that people are going to want to go back to. And then at the end, actually doing a lot of the measurements and insights. Are we tracking adoption in the right way? Are people mm -hmm. feeling good about this? Is this having a, a strong imprint on the brand so that talent actually wants to come here? And ultimately, are we achieving our business goals of greater retention and continuing to be a great place to work. So we're using our full suite of capabilities to help support MyPlus. You know, it's it's interesting, um, Megan, because recruitment and retention used to be sort of a sleepy backwater communications role, right? And and clearly, the war war for talent is at the top of the list for you all to be able to execute on your strategy and continue to grow. And the communication needs around that have just grown exponentially. Yeah, our uh, U.S. chair and senior partner Tim Ryan has been quoted at CNBC and in a couple other places that the you know war for talent is done and the talent won, right? So um, <laughs> it's really on us as as companies and as communicators to continue to talk about and sell and create the right experience for our employees that so they want. To stay here, we know that we have greater retention, greater productivity. Um, we also know that we want to be a great place to build a career. There's many, many avenues. I've had six jobs in eight years, and so why not create that opportunity for people to have a long-lasting stay at the firm, even if it means going left and going right, and you know, trying new and different things. Uh, one of the words you used earlier was connections. I'm going to try and make a, a couple of connections here and see, and, and, and see if, if, if there's, there's some uh, additional grist here for us to explore. Uh, you spent nearly nine years at Edelman in its business and social purpose uh, work. So one, I'm keen to learn how that work informs what you do at PwC. And then secondly, uh, you, you mentioned the CEO, Tim Ryan. I've seen him on, on a lot of business shows, and he's kind of been in the forefront in discussions about DE&I, as well as purpose. Uh, would love to know more how the two of you are working to address such issues inside PwC. Yeah, so I had the great pleasure of joining Edelman when it was just starting its CSR practice. In fact, it, uh, you know, we were not even called that at that point. Um, and we spent a lot of time with companies actually thinking through what are the right strategies, not communication strategies, program strategies in all parts of ESG. It wasn't even called ESG then. What are the operational elements that we need to do to create a more sustainable 
workplace? What are the commitments that we need to make to communities to be able to have, feel like we're a longstanding citizen? What are the commitments that we need to make to employees to continue to be a great place to work? And that really prepared me for when I came in and actually my first role at the firm was to be the CSR communications director. And I started working with Tim shortly after that. And I have to Hmm. say, he is a true visionary in this area. He really saw that DE&I was going to be at the intersection of business and society long before I think many people were really focusing on this. And he came into his CEO spot in 2016. And if we go back to that time, there were many Black men who were getting shot. There was um, police officers that were getting shot. Unfortunately, it's still happening today. But it was happening. Remember Ferguson and yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And he got a note from one of our black employees who said to him, you know, why didn't the firm acknowledge this? In fact, the silence was deafening. And Tim is a very action oriented individual and CEO. And he really took that to heart and he took calculated risk. He shut down the firm for an entire day. And we had our first day of understanding to talk about race. And we learned so much from everybody on that day, more than I think we've ever learned before about empathy and understanding and people's life experiences and where they were coming from. And so I think we all felt great about that. Um, And then another employee emailed Tim and said, I love what you did internally, but gosh, what are you going to do to help change the way business is operating in this space, given it's so important. And Tim took that challenge on and he created CEO Action for Diversity and Inclusion. It's the largest business-led coalition to advance DEI in the workplace. I had the privilege to help him build that and launch that. Um, at the time that we launched it in 2017, we had 175 CEOs that were committed to it. And they had to commit to four big actions within the pledge. It was very focused on being action oriented so that CEOs had to take this back into the workplace. The four things that they committed to were having these days of understanding that would be sometimes hard, but really important to building that understanding, that empathy across the workplace. Second, invest in bias training to really help people understand what biases are and what they aren't. Mm -hmm. Third, share best and unsuccessful practices, right? It's really easy to share all the good things that are going well, but we actually learn from each other when we share the unsuccessful practices. And then the last thing is to commit to share your DEI plans with the board, because that was something that was starting to emerge as a really big board topic. So we are building that coalition today. It's 2,400 CEOs, so still the largest CEO-led business coalition out there to advance DEI. But then you fast forward to 2020 after George Floyd's murder and Tim made uh, another series of commitments. So he extended the CEO action brand and went into CEO action for racial equity. And that was a public policy um, organization where CEOs signed up to advance racial equity within a public policy stance. He also committed to putting out a DEI transparency report to really help build trust with our people and help them understand the progress that we're making in areas that we still need to invest in. We were the first professional services firm to do that. 
we launched in October 2020, we outlined everything from where we are making progress on our employee population, with our partnership, with commitments to communities, um, and as well as how well we're doing and attracting the right talent into the firm. We built upon that in our um, subsequent reports and tried to focus on um, environmental data, governance data, and technology to create what we would see more today as an ESG report. And we've done that every year mm-hmm. um, with our people to help build that trust and transparency to help them understand that we are serious and committed to this um, as part of our overall commitment. Yeah, Gary, just to underscore this, this is really landmark work. And uh, I, I even took note of it uh, at the time um, as CEO Action came together when I was yes. the U.S. CEO versus Marsteller in the U.S. Uh, further, uh, in my current employee, when we began to assess uh, our commitments to the world and what we were doing from an ESG perspective at, at Enbridge, uh, our CEO also signed a pledge for CEO action. I should also say that CEO action had became uh, a model even for yet a, a another organization that's out of Canada called Black North, where essentially they now have seven pledges that they're looking for CEOs to make. It's kind of the first four are those that are embedded uh, in CEO action, and then they have three more specific related to Black communities in, in Canada. So it's really, really important work. And, uh, you know, my, my hat's off to PwC and its CEO for taking this on. Yeah. You know, and, and Mike and Megan, we've, we saw back in 2020 and after the George Floyd murder, lots of pledges from many different companies and uh, of donations, of action. Um, and uh, we've been on a journey. Many of them have been on a journey, uh, uh, some with some success and some with limited success for various reasons. That's not a criticism of those who haven't been able to meet their goals. But the key to all of this, of course, is transparency, right? Is letting people know where you are in that journey and along the lines of what you're trying to do, even if you've stubbed your toe a bit or if uh, you've fallen a little bit behind. And so that's, uh, Mike, I said the same thing is this idea of trying not to talk about the issue is exactly the wrong approach. And and uh, so I say kudos to PwC for for the leadership and, but particularly for the transparency. I, I was very interested. I hadn't known about the report, but I did take a look at it over the weekend. Quite, quite impressive. Yeah. The other element, the other element that's important, I think, is, is the listening and the conversation um, that was embedded in kind of that original day of understanding, yes. uh, which now lots of companies have reinterpreted in their own ways. And now there are days of understanding. And we, we I think a lot of companies look at the month of April in which they explore various opportunities to talk about uh, the issue in, in quite remarkable and open ways. And that's, uh, that's healthy for these organizations. Yeah. So, so Megan, along those lines, so you've got your hand in a lot of things, as do many communications leaders these days, more so than 
even when I was a communicator, you know, and chief communications officer a few years ago, more stakeholders, more access to your brand and your reputation than ever before. So how do you balance all of this and how do you keep track of stakeholders, these disparate issues, initiatives you're working on? What's sort of your work style that allows you to keep all of these balls in the air at the same time? Gary, I couldn't have said it better myself. I think the challenge for communications leaders and communications departments has never been higher. Um, and the world has never been more disparate and fragmented. And it's been harder to reach people. You used to be able to just put out your news to NBC, New York Times, Wall Street Journal and be like, all right, great. I got 80% of my audiences and I, I hit them with my messages. And now you're lucky if you can get over the 50% line and then let alone you know, have them uh, agree and like the messages that they're receiving. And today there's so many forums for people to give feedback. Um, we have one uh, for us it, a professional services called Fishbowl, and it's an anonymous way for people to give feedback. And boy, are people <laughs> harsh about when they don't like something. Um, so I'll go back to you know the focus on ComTech because that's a real area for us to continue to have insights and real understanding around our disparate audiences. We have a big stakeholder map where we understand around who our different audiences and stakeholders are, what their feelings are, and we're tracking them on very dis disparate issues. But the focus on the data and the insights allows us to understand them more quickly and more readily and then tailor the messages. And for really polarizing issues, we actually don't try to make all stakeholders happy, but we do try to bring them along on the journey that we went through to come to the decision that we went through. So even sure. if they don't understand uh, they don't agree with it, they understand the process, right? And that's, I think, where trust is built um, as opposed to just general agreement and trying to make everybody happy. But it is definitely one of the major challenges and I would say opportunities for communications leaders today. That's great. I, I know we have a lot of uh, student listeners and they're always interested about uh, the paths to learning. And I know there's a university you and I share in common, and then there's also the fact we've brought up page up quite a bit during the context of today's discussion. And for the uninitiated, page up is a organization for uh, high potential senior communications professionals, leaders, and it's associated with the Page Society, which brings together chief communications officers, agencies, CEOs, and top academics in the public relations field. So Megan, help us understand how one page up has helped your development. And then of course, I would love to know, you know how your Georgetown experience has also played into your career. Um, so two very great questions. Um, page and page up, I can't say enough great things about it. it. Page is truly the preeminent communications organization that's on the forefront of the profession and really shaping where and how and um, what we should be spending our time. I've had a tremendous amount of success in being able to network with my peers, especially during the pandemic when the traditional conference circuit or networking circles were shut down. Paige was really integral to still having that connective tissue for us. I just went through the Future Leaders Program, and so that's a deep dive within Page Up to be able to give these senior communicators the skills, the access, um, to be able to continue to push the profession forward within their organizations. 
And I'm just extremely thankful to the organization for its role that it plays within the profession, because I think it's making a measurable difference in how we show up as, you know, communicators today. Um, Equally, uh, my heart belongs to Georgetown. I was uh, sitting in a business school class and shout out to Professor, Professor Edward Sewell, who is, I think, still working at Georgetown today. And we were debating between if companies should have a greater focus on business and society through in our ethics class. Uh-huh. And at that point, I was a finance major and I was just so enthralled by the topic and so passionate about it. And I truly believed that companies had the opportunity and uh, the need to be able to have a bigger role in societal issues. And I then switched my major to marketing and communications and then got internships at agencies and um, companies along the way within social marketing and CSR, and then landed my first job in the field. And that really shaped who I am today and uh, my focus on purpose throughout all parts of my job. But it was thanks to Professor Sewell at Georgetown who changed my entire career. Hoya Saxa. Hoya Saxa. Well, that's that's enough Georgetown. Okay, that's we're that we've we've been through this. No, it's a great school, <laughs> and I and the program is terrific there. By the way, I'm I'm really impressed with what they're doing down there. But I, but I I, I love Megan your, your the focus on business and society. It's a lot. We talk about that a lot in the classroom here at Boston University as well too. And I can tell you for people out there who are thinking about recruiting young people out of communication schools, they are laser focused on this topic is, is they want to work at places that understand that nexus and, and they want to advance it uh, in uh, every way that they can. So they're coming and they're really good. And uh, so particularly look out for the BU folks. So Megan, this has been, this has been fantastic. And, and I really, really appreciate you being uh, on the crux and telling us about PwC and all the amazing work you're you're doing there. Thank you, Gary, and thank you, Mike, for having me. I'm so absolutely thrilled. Thank you for listening to the crux. Our producer is Boston University student Anna Huynh. This episode and other episodes are made possible by the Boston University College of Communication, or COM, as it is known. Located in the heart of downtown Boston, COM is BU's home to the studies of advertising, emerging media, film and TV, journalism, media science, and public relations. At COM, we seek to build understanding among people through better communication. Find out more at www.bu.edu forward slash Come.